0: Welcome to Bethesda Broadcast, the podcast of Bethesda Church in Huron, South Dakota. Today, we are continuing our series through the book of James, and we come to verses 25 through 27 of chapter 1. We will be looking at religion, a matter of practice. Pastor Roy will be looking at three practices of people who consider themselves to be religious. We encourage you to open up your Bibles to the book of James and follow along with Pastor Roy.
1: I don't have a PowerPoint for you this morning. Um, so we'll just uh, jump into the, the message we're picking back up with the book of James today. And today we are talking about religion a matter of practice. I wonder if you consider yourself to be a religious person. You know, there's a lot of different definitions when we talk about religion um, St. Augustine one time said, Most of us know perfectly well what religion is until someone asks us to define it. Uh, Wordcentral.com said that religion is the service and worship of God or the supernatural. Britannica Encyclopedia 2006 said religion is human beings... Relation to that which they regard as holy, sacred, spiritual, or divine. Merriam's Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, online, 2006, said, Religion is a personal set or institutionalized system of religious attitudes, beliefs, or practices. I like C.S. Lewis when he talks about religion. He said, to be religious is to have one's attention fixed on God and on one's neighbor in relation to God. I like that. Let me say that again. This is C.S. Lewis. To be religious is to have one's attention fixed on God and on one's neighbor in relation to God. Today we want to talk about three practices that will be evident in a truly religious person. If we are truly a religious person in the truest sense of the word, in the way that James uses this word, these three practices will be a part of our life. And so I want you and myself to evaluate where we are at in relationship to these three practices. Before we mention them, let's read... We're going to pick back up in verse 22 of James chapter 1 and read through the end of the chapter. James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So the first practice that should be evident in a religious person is this, the religious practice of becoming more like Jesus. That should be the goal and the desire and attitude and passion and focus of our life. Notice what James says in one twenty-two: Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does, do, does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. What is the driving force of me looking into the mirror of the word of God? It's to become like Jesus. It's not to have a checklist to say, well, I read a chapter today. God, I I did my duty. I did my deed. I'm a good person. I read the scripture. But is it having an impact in my life? Is it changing the way I think? Is it changing the way I behave? Is it changing the way I treat people in my relationships with other people? In the ancient world, the mirror was a specially shaped piece of polished metal And it was used to inspect and decorate one's body. Ancient literature is filled with references to the mirror, and it was used as a metaphor for moral development. The mirrors, however, were not placed on walls. In Bible times, they were actually placed on a table. And so for you to actually see a reflection of yourself, you would have to walk over to the table, and you would have to stoop down and get down closer to that Mirror, because it was polished metal not the kind of mirrors we have today and to be able to see that you had to stoop and look and bend just the same word that is used when the the ladies went to the tomb to stoop in and look to see Jesus being gone it's that kind of stooping and looking and that's what we have to do to become more like Jesus we have to do that There's a necessity of looking into this mirror. Now, if I had to guess, I would guess that the Bethesda Church family spent more time in front of the mirror this week than probably previous weeks because of the church picture directory. I'm sure. Did you spend more time in front of the mirror? Be honest. Anybody? I don't see any hands. Nobody's raising a hand. Nobody spent more time in front of the mirror? Come on. All right, there's one. Let's sing another verse. There's another one. Yes. We spend more time in front of the mirror. Why? Because we're concerned what we look like. And we want to make sure that we look the right way. James here talks about not being just a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. The word for hear here is the word we get for auditor. Now, if sometimes you can take a college class and you audit a class. You don't have to take the tests, you don't have to write the papers, you don't have to do the homework, but you also don't get the credit and you don't get a degree. But you just sit there and merely listen to the lectures. The problem is there's no accountability and no real responsibility. You're just a a passive listener. We cannot afford to do that with God's word. He's telling us we cannot do that. In Luke eleven twenty seven 27 and 28, as Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. That we hear it and obey it. Two things we need to think about in relationship to the mirror. One is the danger of only glancing into the mirror versus the discipline of gazing into the mirror there's a danger of only glancing into the mirror and that's the person who comes in and he looks he says and after looking at himself in verse 24 he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like and he's talking about somebody with their natural face it's hard to imagine that you could look into a mirror and walk away from it and forget what you look like but that's what he's saying happens spiritually to people if the only time you gaze into, look, or glance into the mirror is on Sunday morning during worship service, you're going to walk away and forget what you heard. I mean, honestly, can you remember what the sermon was about by Tuesday morning? <laughs> Oftentimes we can't. I have my own challenges and I bring the message to remember what I said. So we have to come back to the Word of God regularly and faithfully. There's a danger of glancing into the mirror. Now think about it. If I do not have the mirror of God's Word, where else am I going to get understanding? Am I going to get it from philosophy, psychology? Am I going to get it from the media, the news, paper? How about the Quran? Is the Quran? can I look into the Quran and it tell me who I really am? Only the Word of God. It is a unique book. It is the only book that really tells me who I am. So there's a danger of glancing into the mirror so that I do not remember who I am or what I really look like. But secondly, there's a discipline of gazing into the mirror. That is, I do remember who I am and I do remember what I look like. I learn who I am. The mirror of God's word reveals my sin, my brokenness, the fact that I possess no righteousness apart from Christ whatsoever. I learn that I am helpless apart from Christ. In Romans 7.15, Paul says, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Romans 8.8 8 says, those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You see, in the mirror of God's word, we see the imputation of sin. I understand I have a depraved heart. I understand I have a corrupt mind. I understand that I am separated from God and I'm dead in my trespasses and sins, but the only possible way I can know that or you can know that is looking into the mirror of God's word. And that's why it's so vital that we look at it. And that's why so many people shy away from the Word of God because it exposes who we are. And yet that's exactly what we need in our lives. Let me give you an example. When I open this book and I begin to look into this mirror, here's what I see in this mirror. Injustice, murder, lying, rape, sexual abuse... Deceit, pride, drunkenness, envy, hatred, jealousy, manipulation. All that grocery list of items can be found. Listen to this. All those items I just listed can be found in the book of Genesis alone. You talk about a mirror that God has given us to show us that we live in a broken world. And that we need Jesus Christ. All of that is found. We also learn about the impact of sin. That it brings guilt and fear and shame. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. What did they do? They hid from the very person who loved them. And wanted an intimate relationship with them. They hid. Because of the mirror. That reflected their sin back to them. But not only do I learn who I am and that I am hopeless and helpless apart from Christ, I learn who God is. When I look into the mirror, I can see who God is. I can see his character and what he's about. I learn about creation, justification, atonement, God's grace, his sovereignty, his holiness, his loving kindness, his great compassion, and his long-suffering. I learn about his promises. I learn about his presence. I learn about his power all by looking into the mirror of God's word. I also learn how to view trials. He tells us that in chapter 1. I learn how to gain victory over temptation. I learn how to gain wisdom for my life as I look into God's word. What else do we learn as we look into the mirror? This is very important because here's where our culture is telling us something different. If we're not looking into the mirror, we'll be swayed by the culture. I understand marriage. That it is between one man and one woman for life. That is God's plan. There, there is no same-sex marriage in the Bible. The Bible condemns it. The mirror tells me that marriage is one man and one woman for life. So by looking into the mirror, I have a clear understanding of what marriage is all about. I don't have to look to the culture. I don't have to listen to what the crowd says. I know what marriage is about by looking into the mirror. I learn about intimacy by looking into the mirror of God's Word and how intimacy is to behave in marriage, I learn about birth. I learn about death. I learn about relationships. I learn about work. I learn about morality based on God's holiness by looking into the mirror of His Word. I also learn about gender identity. Gender identity from biological birth, I learn from looking into the mirror of God's Word. Today, there's a gender identity confusion. Why is that so the case? It's the case because we have abandoned what God has given us in the revelation of his word. <laughs> and then we wonder why our world is in such a mess. The gender identity is very clear when I open Scripture and says he created them male and female. He created, and he created us in God's image. So I understand my identity when I see who God is and who I am. You see, the hearer with short-term memory will fail to remember, and a failure to remember will result in a failure to act like Jesus, like he wants us to act. We need to have long-term memory. He says to look In verse 25, the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. How do I get that longer-term memory, though? How does that happen? It happens through meditation on the Word of God. It doesn't happen just because I open the Scripture and I read the Scripture and I mindlessly check it off my list— But I meditate on the Word of God, and it penetrates my heart and my mind and my attitude, and I weigh my actions, and I say, am I being more like Jesus? That's what we're supposed to be like. In Joshua 1.8, it says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written therein notice he says meditate on it day and night for what purpose that you may be careful to do according to all that is written therein for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success he says in psalm 1 blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So my motivation then to open the Scripture is to become like Jesus. The religious practice of becoming more like Jesus is why I open the Scripture. Meditation then provides the believer the fuel we need to walk in truth. We apply ourselves to the Word so that you may be able to apply the Word to your life. Apply yourself to the Word so you can apply the Word to your life. You see, there are too many Christians who mark their Bibles, but their Bibles never mark them. And it should. The second practice... That should be evident in a religious person is not only becoming more like Jesus, but the religious practice of bridling my tongue. If we look down in verse 26, he says, If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. In other words, what comes out of my mouth will either confirm or judge who I really am. It is that external factor that determines what is really happening in my heart. You see, a calloused heart will result in an uncontrolled tongue. There's no other way about it. If you have a calloused heart you will have an uncontrolled tongue. You will have a tongue full of gossip, bitterness, anger, resentment, hatred, maliciousness, lies, profanity, perverseness will come out of your mouth because of your calloused heart. And you cannot be the religious person that God wants you to be until you have a new heart. He says, if anyone considers himself, if you think you are a religious person, he says, if you think you are in a right relationship with God, then you better keep a tight rein on your tongue, or the Bible says you deceive yourself and your religion is worthless. It means you trick yourself. <laughs> you see, the Bible says in uh, Jeremiah seventeen nine, the heart is what? deceitful and desperately wicked who can know it. And there are many, many people who sit in church week after week and they can talk okay in church, but when they get out there and they're with their buddies and their friends, their speech changes. That's a sign of a calloused heart. If you use profanity and perverse speech, you lie and you do all those things, he's saying you do not have true religion. That's what James is saying. You have a false religion. You don't have the genuine article. We have to guard our speech. And notice he gives the image of harnessing a horse at the mouth. That's a bridle, harnessing the horse at the mouth, bridling An unrestrained tongue is a very accurate measuring stick of one's true relationship with God, is what he's saying. If you have a true religion and relationship with God, it will be reflected in your speech and in my speech. If God's word is planted in my heart and I'm meditating on the word of God, guess what's going to come out of me? The word of God. But if I'm not then the word of God is not going to come out of me. The story is told of a young man who paid a visit to the great philosopher Socrates to be trained as an orator. In his first meeting with his instructor, he began to talk nonstop. When Socrates was finally able to get in a word, he said, young man, I will have to charge you a double fee. A double fee? Why is that? Well, I will have to teach you two sciences. First, how to hold your tongue, and then how to use it. You see, our speech should bring glory to God. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, it says in 1 Corinthians, do all for the glory of God. That includes our speech. Our tongue is very, very significant. If you have a speech problem, you have a God problem. You have a true religion problem. And there is far too many people who claim to know Jesus Christ, but in their speech, they deny him. Our speech reflects what's going on in our hearts if we go back to James chapter 1 for a moment, look in verse 16. The whole idea of deception is throughout this chapter. In James 1.16, he says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Here it's right on the heels of temptation. Don't be deceived. Look down in verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. You can sit in church and hear the word of God and be deceived because you walk out unchanged. If you walk out unchanged from hearing the word of God, you are deceiving yourself. That's what he's saying. And then he goes down to verse 26. If anyone considers himself religious and does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself. So one of the keys in chapter 1 is deception. And the master deceptor is the enemy of our soul. He used deception in the garden. And what did he try to deceive with Adam and Eve? He tried to deceive them regarding the character of God. He tried to tell them God is not good and he is withholding something from you. Has he done that to you? What is your understanding of the character of God as you peer into the mirror of his word? Do you understand that he loves you and he cares about you and he wants a relationship with you? If the external framework of our worship goes no deeper than singing and praising God on Sunday morning, we have a very hollow religion. We have a framework with no substance. It is like cotton candy, it melts when touched with water. A religious man will bridle his tongue. In Matthew twelve, thirty-six and thirty-seven, he says, But I say that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. It's strong language about our speech. So here is another practice. First, the religious practice of becoming more like Jesus. Is that your passion? Is that your focus as you open the Word of God? You are wanting God to change you from the inside out. Secondly, the religious practice of bridling my tongue. Thirdly, the religious practice of bringing relief to the poor. James talks about the poor quite a bit. And he's saying, we as the Christian community have a responsibility to bring relief to the poor. God has called us to do that. And I can hold my hand up as quick as anybody and say, I have not done well in that area. That's an area of major needed growth in my life. I don't know about you. But he's saying a religious man is going to minister to the helpless in their poverty, Look at verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. According to James, he's saying this pure religion is not merely ceremonial formality. Where we go through rituals, where we come in and we sing the songs, and we do the sermon and we leave, and we come in next week and we do the songs and we hear the sermon and leave, and we come in and hear the songs and the sermon and leave, and there's no life change. That we're becoming like Jesus, that our tongue is being bridled, that we're bringing relief to the poor, that we're actually concerned about the poor and the wealth and blessings that God has given to us. We want to pour out upon them to ease their pain and their load. He's saying it's not ceremonial formality. It's acts of mercy, love, and holiness. He's saying this religion is pure. It is unsoiled. It is free of guilt and sin. It's a pure religion. It's somebody who's in a right relationship with God. Clean in a spiritual sense. They're sincere. They're upright. They're void of evil. Nothing... Polluted or unstained or unsoiled. And then he goes on to say that they will visit. Notice he says, to look after or visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. To visit means to go to where someone is and understand their condition, but not just understand it, but saying, I want to help them in their condition. To improve their situation. And I think the reason that James chose orphans and widows, because in Bible times they were the most distressed people, they were the most needy people. And we see that throughout Scripture because you go to Acts chapter 6, the widows were being neglected, it said in the daily distribution of food. Paul talks about in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that to care for the widows, God condemned the Israelites for their failure to care for the orphans and widows. And so He may do for us. In Isaiah 1, verse 16 and 17, listen to this. Here's what God says to Israel. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the cause of the widow. And Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5, 3, Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. And I think it's stated the best by Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Listen to these words. When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. See, that is true religion to care for the needs of the poor. And then he says to keep oneself unspotted. It means our spiritual devotion to God, that we are to keep on keeping ourselves unspecked from the world, from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, those things we are to keep at bay out of our lives, that which would pollute us. Now, We may not know a ton of orphans around here. We have some widows. But what about some other people that might come into our church who are broken because of a past? Maybe somebody who comes in who has no relationship or even knows who their father was. And they're here. How do we minister to them? What about somebody that comes in that has an addiction problem? How do we minister to them? Do we gravitate toward them or do we keep them at arm's length? I want you to think deeply about this. Because there are some people who will only don the doors of the church one time. And if we fail to reach out to them, we've missed an opportunity. To show the love of Christ. That God would give us a sensitive heart. The the, the longer I live and the longer I've been in ministry, the more I realize there are many, many, many broken people in our world. And I want to remind us of something else. You know why there's many broken people in our world? Because all of us are broken. All of us are broken because of sin. And so we in our brokenness need to reach out to someone else who is broken to minister to them. You see, when I understand that I'm a recipient of grace, then I'm going to give grace to someone else. But if I lose sight of the fact that I'm a recipient of grace, I will not give grace. And these people need grace. And I really believe that God is calling our church to be more intentional of reaching out to the broken and the wounded. And I want to encourage you in that in your circle of influence, in the places of business that you go in, the people that you see, the least likely that you think would dawn the doors of the church, would you pray for them? Would you invite them? Would you sit down with them and hear their story and care? That's what I think James is asking us to do. Here he says orphans and widows, but we have many, many broken people in our world. That need the love of Christ. So I ask us, do we have the religious practice of becoming more like Jesus? Do we have the religious practice of bridling my tongue or does your speech deny any reality of God? And does your religious practice bring relief to the poor? I know many have sponsored children for Compassion International And I know many have already had children sponsored for years. And it's been a challenge to our family to to do that. That's why I say I have much room to grow. So I'm not throwing stones. I have much room to grow. But God help us in reaching out to the poor. Let's stand for a word of prayer. I would ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. I just want to ask you, does this message strike a chord with you in one way, shape, or form? Do you really have a practice of becoming more like Jesus? Or do you even have a problem finding your Bible on Sunday morning? Say, well, I know I left it here somewhere last Sunday. And brush the dust off and come to church and hear another boring sermon and make it through? Or is the Word of God finding lodging in your heart? What about your tongue? When you're not with mom and dad, when you're not around a deacon or an elder, the pastor, what's your tongue say then? Does it prove the reality of your religion or does it condemn you? And what about relieve relieving the needs of the poor? With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I would just ask you if there's an area in your life today you say pastor God has spoken to me and I'm willing to admit it with heads bowed and eyes closed would you just slip your hand up for a moment so I can pray for you not by name but just so I can pray for you that I know that God has spoken to you would you do that this morning thank you anybody else thank you very much anybody else you can put your hand down anybody else Thank you very much. Anybody else right before I pray? God has spoken to me. Thank you. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. And if you have a special need in your life that you would like prayer for, would you please seek myself out or someone else? We're here to... Encourage one another to be more like Jesus. Let's pray.
0: We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is Bethesdamb.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.